Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org. And please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Deuteronomy chapters 8 and 9. So Deuteronomy, I'll probably say this often as we go through here, but known for some as the second law, Deuteronomy coming, the title itself coming from the Septuagint. And so the Greek word for second law is Deuteronomy. But the Hebrew title is really the first uh, three, four words that uh, are written in Deuteronomy 1, 1. These are the words. So the Hebrew title, these are the words. And it goes on to say, these are the words that the Lord gave to Moses. But Hebrew title, these are the words. Deuteronomy, the second law. The reason it's called the second law is because there's a rehearsing of the past 40 years. And we're going to find that tonight in chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Deuteronomy. In chapter 8, I pulled out a key verse from Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. It says, You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So I pulled this out as a key verse. And at first glance, it may appear that God humbled and tested Israel for a period of 40 years that he might know what was in their hearts. But this really goes against what we know about God, God being eternal and being omniscient, knowing all things, knowing the beginning from the end, as declared in Isaiah 46:10, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will do my all my pleasure. I believe the humble and testing was not that God would know what was in Israel's heart, but that Israel themselves would discover what was in their own hearts. And so we begin to humble and test you, verses 1 through 5. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these 40 years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, the Lord God chastens you. So first we discover that God commanded Israel to be careful to observe his commandments. And we looked at this last week. The commandments, including God's laws, his statutes, his judgments, his testimonies, 
Uh, all these are very common words in this section of Scripture as Moses keeps referring back to these things. In Deuteronomy 6:25, Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. It's righteousness for us. It helps us to know how we ought to walk and to please God. So first, God commanded Israel to be careful to observe his commandments. And this was going to be for the benefit of Israel. Second, the purpose for observing God's commandment was in order that they might live and multiply in the land promised to their forefathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they're getting ready to enter in. In chapter 9, Moses will say on this very day, and so they are right there. They're camped across from Jericho. On the, currently, Israel is on the east side of the Jordan River, and Moses is preparing them to enter into the promised land. They're on the border. But the purpose for obeying God's commandment was in order that Israel might live and multiply in the land that God had promised to their forefathers. In Deuteronomy 1.8, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord has swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. So it was to help them to know how they ought to conduct themselves in this land. Remember, Israel, they've been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. They've only been out of Egypt, but in the wilderness for 40 years. So God gave his commandments that they might know how they should live as children of God, as representatives of God in this world. Third, God humbled them through hunger, fed them that they might know. This goes back to verse 2 for me as well where in verse 2, God said he humbled and tested them that he might know what is in their hearts. But here, he specifically says that they might know they were humbled through hunger. He fed them with manna that they might know, verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Familiar to us because Jesus gave these same words to Satan when he was being tempted in the wilderness. And Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And though Jesus could have turned stone into bread, as Satan suggested that he do, his focus was Godward. He wasn't seeking to satisfy his hunger by supernatural means. And like Jesus, we should never use the gifts that the Lord has given us for personal gain, but we should daily seek God's provision that we might know that we do not live by bread alone. It's not about what we eat, although that's an important part of our day. I'm kind of big on having those three square meals a day and a few snacks in between. But... We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So we should be praying for God's provision to give us this day our daily bread. Also, 
God's provision for Israel during the 40 years, their garments didn't even wear out. Their feet did not even swell. And uh, it's interesting in the sense they were in the wilderness, a very arid and dry place. So usually in the warmer climates, if people are going to have problems with feet swelling and stuff, that's the climate that would do it. Not so during that time. But also for a lesson, that as a man chastens his son, the Lord your God chastens you. And God chastens us as believers today. These same word is used in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 11.3. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. So the Lord's chastening is not for our condemnation, but for our redemption to teach us how we ought to walk and to please God. So we see in these first five verses... God gave them four specific things that they were to do. They were to be careful to observe his commandments by observing his commandments. Number two, that they would be multiplied in the land given to their forefathers. Third, he humbled them that he might feed them, that they might know that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the father's mouth. And fourth, he even caused their garments and their feet to, garments to last, their feet to not swell, to teach them that God's chastening hand, those 40 years in the wilderness, God was providing and caring for them. I think that's been kind of a prayer in my life quite often, especially the older I get. I can look back 40 years. I can look back 50 years. I can kind of look back 60 years. It gets a little... Uh, Memory fails at three and two years old. I have a rougher time remembering those things. I do remember my first word that I spelt was Zenith because I copied it off our brand new television set when I was a little boy. And I do remember getting our first colored TV and those were all early childhood memories. I remember the fire engines coming to the house when the girls were at school, so I was still at home because our one-room stove furnace uh, caught on fire and they had to bring the white trucks in Winthrop Harbor. Their fire trucks are all white, so the white trucks, even way back in the 1963 or 4, the trucks were painted white, still are as far as I know there. But I remember those earlier days. But often looking back and sometimes praying that Lord you've brought us this far and here he has said for these 40 years remember I have provided for you these 40 years this is a big deal because they had a new season that they were about ready to step into as they entered into the promised land and even there God would provide so 8 through or 6 through 10 they were to keep walk in fear up to this point, there was a phrase that had been used ten times in, uh, in really pretty much, I think, Exodus and Deuteronomy, but in the writings of Moses up to this point, ten times you've heard the phrase, land flowing with milk and honey. Or sometimes it's slightly different, but it's more often than not exactly like that, land flowing with milk and honey. It would be another ten times that we'll find it used before we 
finish the Old Testament. And 20 times in the Bible, describing the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But here in verses 6 through 10, we get a more descriptive look at the promised land. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stone are iron, and out of the hills you can dig for copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. So in verse 6, three requirements for Israel that they were to keep, to walk, and to fear. First, they were to keep the commandments of the Lord their God. To keep, it's a Hebrew word that speaks about to hedge about as with thorns. So they were to guard themselves uh, like a shepherd might do for his flock, to hedge around with thorns to keep the enemy out. You were to do this with the word of God, the commandments of God, to hedge it around you, that it would be a guard to you. Righteousness, so they were to keep, walk, and fear And they were to keep the way of the Lord, Genesis 18:19. For I have known him, talking about Abraham, I have known him in order that he may command his children, his household after him, that they keep, shamar, it's the same Hebrew word, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and judgment, justice, that the Lord may bring Abraham to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So righteousness and judge, justice. It is synonymous for the life that they were to have with God, with others, with themselves, with the rest of creation. God wanted them, Shamar, to keep, to hedge his commandments around them. Second, Hilka, to walk. It means to walk, go, or come. And it speaks about the lifestyle that they were to have. They were to be in a continual relationship with Yahweh. And third, they were to fear Yahweh. And it's a word, Yair, it means to fear, to be afraid, but to revere also. And the word tells us in Proverbs 9:10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So after encouraging Israel to keep walking fear, Moses begins to describe the good land. And he said just that. It is a good land. It has brooks, fountains, and springs. And they are flowing from the valleys and the hills. As we know, water is essential for life. And after living 40 years in the wilderness, I'm sure Israel would love to hear that the promised land would have plenty of water. It would also produce wheat and barley and figs and grapes and pomegranates as well as olive trees for oil and the olives, the honey in abundance. The land would produce abundantly for them. 
And so they wouldn't have to be searching for food as often they did there in the wilderness, especially in the beginning. They wouldn't have to worry about the food. The land would be abundant. The stones, they would get iron. The hills, they would get copper. Therefore, Moses reminds them after they had eaten to the full that they were to bless the Lord God and the good land that he had given them. I think there's always a danger. He's going to get to that in Deuteronomy as well in our text tonight. But there's always that danger when we have eaten, we are satisfied, when the provision is abundant, that we forget to bless the Lord. And here's the reminder. Don't forget to bless me. Psalm 103, 2 through 5. Oh, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who satisfies your mouth with good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. So again, do not forget, but keep verses 11 through 17. So recurring theme, don't forget the things that I've done for you. Make sure you keep my commandments. So reading from verses 11 through 17, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments, his judgments, his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them, when your herds and flocks multiply, your silver and your gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up, that you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who fed you through the great and terrible wilderness in which were fiery serpents and scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water, who brought forth water for you from the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna, And your fathers did not know that he might humble you, that he might test you to do good in the end, that you might say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. So that was the danger. They were going to think, man, look at what my power, my might has provided. And God's saying, you didn't provide anything for yourself. Remember a laborer, as I was just reading that, many years ago on the job, probably 1995, uh, considering the job that we were working on, where we were at at the time, had a laborer that worked with us for a season, and he he was married and he had one child, and he said one day that at the dinner table, he doesn't have his family pray to God for Thanksgiving for the food, but to praise him for the food that he has provided for them. I probably had some words for him, but I can't remember if I responded to that. I'm sure I did at that time. But that's pretty arrogant. But there are a lot of people like that, right? Look at what I've done. Look at my power, my might. When your heart is lifted up, lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And often... Good times, success, ease of life can lift people's hearts up with pride. Think about the parable of the certain rich man that Jesus talked about who had a bumper crop 
And he thought to himself, Luke 12:17, What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, verse 18, I will pull down my barns and build greater. There I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, So you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. So Luke 12:20, God responds, Full, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? And Jesus said, So it is he who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. So we need to be careful that we're always blessing the Lord, thanking the Lord for the provision that he gives to us and the way he teaches us for our learning that we're walking in this way, that though we may lay up treasures on this earth, that we would be heavenly minded. I was reading a book, I think it was last weekend, it was talk, I, I mentioned this on Sunday because I pulled in the bifocals, um, but the bifocals that this author was talking about, and we talked about this on Sunday during communion, was always looking back to the blessings and looking forward to the things God was going to do. Specifically, the author was talking about the first and second comings of Jesus Christ, that we were to have this split view in how we read and understand Scripture, looking back to the mighty works that God has done for us, looking forward to the work He is going to do. And here we are in the middle of this, making sure that Though we may lay up treasures on this earth, that we bless the Lord, we thank the Lord that we will not be like the certain rich man and be left spiritually bankrupt in eternity. Quite often we can fall into the same trap of becoming so entangled with earthly things that we forget the gospel in which we are to stand. And they were not to forget how God had provided for them in the wilderness wanderings. The great and terrible, he described it, great and terrible wilderness, fiery serpents, scorpions, a thirsty land where there was no water. I was thinking of that. Uh, we had rain yesterday. And uh, I was trying to hammer a stake in the ground today. And it didn't matter. I mean, it didn't rain very long yesterday, so... The land is so thirsty right now, even though it's spring. It's The ground is hard. It licks it up. It drinks it fast. And here, there was no water, but God provided water right from the rock. He fed them manna. In Psalm 78, 23 through 25, recounting this in the Psalms, Yet God commanded the clouds above to be open. The doors of heaven had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angel, angel's food cake. No, angel's food. And he sent them food to the full. God provided and he was still providing the manna to them. The manna did not stop until they spent their first day in the promised land. And from that time forward, they began to eat the grain of the land. So we are reminded, give us this day our daily bread. So I heard this on Monday. 
David Fiorazzo, Stand Up for the Truth. Uh, his co-host, Mary, is doing the end of the month. Uh, I think this was actually Crash. Uh, one of the guys that work at the station was doing this show. And he was talking to um, a man named David. He runs the Nicolay Bible Institute up in White Lake, Wisconsin. The only reason I remember any of that, my sister and brother-in-law have a cabin in White Lake, and the whole forest up there is called the Nicolay Forest. So I'm familiar with the area, otherwise I wouldn't have remembered that. But he read this off, and I thought, oh, I want to look this up. And I found what I believe was the sermon where he got this information from, talking about providing for Israel in the wilderness. So first of all, Israel had to be fed and feeding, in their numbers, three and a half million people required a lot of food. According to the U.S. Army Quartermaster General, Moses needed 1,500 tons of food a day, filling two freight trains, each a mile long. Besides, you must remember, they were cooking the food, not to mention keeping warm. So just for cooking, this took 4,000 tons of firewood, so they needed a few more freight trains, each a mile long, for only one day. And this took place for 40 years. Let's not forget about the water. If they only had enough to drink and to wash a few dishes, no bathing, hopefully they bathed over the 40-year period. It took 11 million gallons each day, enough to fill a train of tanker cards 1,800 miles long. Another thing, to get across the Red Sea, I never even pondered this. They're saying three and a half million. What if it was two million? That's kind of a common thought. Nevertheless, if God parted the Red Sea and did it with a narrow path at their calculation of three and a half million, the line would have been 800 miles long and required 35 days and nights to complete the crossing. They did it in one night. That meant that the line had to stretch three miles wide and they had to go 5,000 abreast as they went across. This is just mathematicians doing math. And every day when they camped, they needed an area the size of Rhode Island or about 750 square miles to spread out. So it was quite a thing to go through the wilderness. And yet Yahweh humbled and tested them while they were in the wilderness. And also he would do so in the promised land that he might do good unto them. But he warned them that they would not, after all this wealth, all this goodness, would not think it was my power, my might, my hand that has caused me to gain these things. So they were to remember and obey. Finishing out the chapter 18 through 20. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as to this day. Then it shall be, if you by any means forget the Lord your God, if follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day, that you will surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not obey 
or would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. So once they entered the land, once they gained the wealth of the land, they were to remember Yahweh who gave them the power to be established in the land that they would not forget the Lord. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, As for every man to whom the Lord has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it and to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. Bottom line, when God takes you through a period of testing and testing that might even include blessing, the purpose behind it is to teach us, but also to cause us to remember the Lord that he desires to do good. And we might be going through a time of testing. God's purpose in those times of testing is not to do us harm. He chastens us because he loves us, that in the end he might do us good. And there's no better good that he has done through the salvation that he has made available to us through Christ Jesus our Lord. So there's a warning in chapter 9 of the danger of pride. Much of this, as I was going through it this morning, And then again this afternoon in Deuteronomy chapter 9 is a rehearsing of Israel being there at Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb. So here in Deuteronomy, it's referred to as Horeb in Exodus as Sinai. So the mountain of God, we can say, split the difference. They were at the mountain of God where Moses received the Ten Commandments, where Israel had Aaron make the golden calf and where judgment came down upon them. So although it's written out, it's not quite in chronological order when you compare the events as they took place in Exodus 32, 33, 34. Uh, There's a few things kind of flipped in the storyline, but we still get the gist of it, and we'll run through this chapter and close this out tonight. So key verse... Verse 5, Deuteronomy 9.5, It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, possess their land, because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God reminds them, it's not because of anything that you guys have done. But this is a promise that I gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm going to fulfill my promise to them, your forefathers, and I'm going to do it through you. So one through three, hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in and to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities greater and great and fortified up to the heaven, a people great and tall, the descendants of Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand against the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord said to you. If you remember around 40 years earlier, they were there at Kadesh Barnea. And God said, go in, possess the promised land. And the people said to Moses, let's send in some spies. 
that we, we don't know where we're going, we don't know what's in the land, so let's send in spies, one from each tribe, 12 altogether. And they went in the land for 40 days, came back out, and said that the land was indeed flowing with milk and honey. Numbers 13, 27 through 29, truly it flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Remember, they brought back fruit from the land. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. But the men who had gone up said to them, We are not able to go up against this people, for they are stronger than we. So 40 years earlier, the spies came back, 10 of them said, We can't do it. And the people's hearts sank. And they refused to obey the Lord. They did not enter into the land, though they would try. It was too late. And God judged them. And that first generation that came out of Egypt did not have the faith Although they had faith to step out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage, they did not have faith to enter into the promised land. And they died there in the wilderness. Now Moses, here in verses 1 through 3, he reminds them of everything that they had known. Hey, the land, the nations that you're going up against, they are greater, they are mightier than you. Their cities are great, and they are fortified up to the heavens. That's a pretty tall city. There are giants in the land. But also understand this, that the Lord your God is going to go before you, and the Lord is a consuming fire. That the Lord would destroy and bring these nations down, that Israel, so notice the participation in verse 3 that God will destroy them and bring them down before Israel so that Israel shall drive them out and destroy them quickly. God wasn't going to do it without Israel's involvement. They were going to be involved. They were going to be the ones swinging the swords, throwing the spears, fighting in the battle, but God was going to go before them as a consuming fire. Much like Paul, who reminds us in Romans 8.31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Back in Deuteronomy 4.24, God used Moses, reminded Israel that God was a consuming fire to encourage them to stay faithful to the Lord, not to forget the covenant of God, not to make any carved images for themselves, to worship other God. If they failed, Moses in Deuteronomy 4.24 said, God is a consuming fire and he's going to deal with you if you fail to obey the Lord. But now that consuming fire is turned toward the enemy of the Lord, the enemy of Israel. The reason God is consuming fire toward Israel because of his jealous love toward them. But here he is a consuming fire toward these seven nations greater and mightier than they, as it says in Deuteronomy 7.1. God is bringing judgment against them, but he uses Israel to do and be part and partake in that judgment. 
But that phrase, a consuming fire, it's even in the New Testament. It's something that the church is to be aware of as well. In Hebrews 12, 28 and 29, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. So this phrase from the Old Testament finds itself in the New Testament as well, talking to the church, in a sense, be careful to walk in the ways of the Lord, walk in reverence, serve God acceptably, fear the Lord. God is a consuming fire. Now if he chastens us, it's because he loves us, but wouldn't it be better to be on the good side of the Lord? and not have to be chastened. So Yahweh would destroy their enemies, bring down these nations, but Israel would participate and help drive them out. And we also are to participate in the battles. Lord, save. But he wants us to go forth and to share our faith that people can hear that they might be saved. In Hebrews 3.14, For we have become partakers of Christ, If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, we are to partake as well in the things of God. So four through six, that Yahweh might fulfill his word. Do not think in your heart after the Lord your God has cast them out before you. It's because of my righteousness. This is what they are not to think. It is because of my righteousness. The Lord has brought me into a to possess this land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, that he may fulfill the word which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is the third time he's referred to back to the word. This is a covenant that God made with Abraham that was passed on to. It wasn't Abraham, understand this, it wasn't Abraham passing on the covenant to Isaac, Isaac passing on the covenant to Jacob. God came to each of these men, though Abraham was the father, Isaac the son, and Jacob the great-grandson, or the grandson, I should say. God came to each of these men, passed on the covenant to them, that it might be fulfilled that which the Lord spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 6, Therefore, understand that the Lord your God has not given you the good land to possess because of your righteousness, because you're a stiff-necked people. God just told them how it is. You guys, you're trouble. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with my word, my covenant with your forefathers and the wickedness of these nations whom God had given 400 years, a time of repentance, but they did not repent. And he warned them about pride once again. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall, according to Proverbs 16:18. So 7 through 12, he talks about the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the covenant. Remember, Do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until 
you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. So in verse 6, God said, you're stiff-necked people. And then Moses reminds them, you've been rebellious against the Lord from the day you left until this time, for the last 40 years. Nothing's changed. You've been rebelling. You did so in Horeb. You provoked the Lord to wrath so that the Lord was angry enough with you to have destroyed you. When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant, which the Lord made with you, then I stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord delivered to me two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. On them were all the words that the Lord God had spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of fire in the day of the assembly. So some we need not to forget before Moses went up on Mount Sinai the first time, Mount Horeb here in Deuteronomy or the mountain of God, we could say before he went up to receive the two tablets written by the finger of God, God descended upon the mountain. He spoke from the mountain in the hearing of the children of Israel. And they responded to Moses You speak with us. We will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. So Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was, Exodus 20 verses 19 through 21. God spoke all these words to Israel first. Israel was freaked out by what they saw. The lightnings, the thunderings, the trumpets sounding, the long blast of the trumpet, um, the voice of the Lord coming from the mountain. They withdrew. And the moment they withdrew, sin began to work in their hearts. Pretty soon, Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The children of Israel wondering what in the world happened to them. And they persuaded his brother, Moses' brother, the guy who could trust of all the people of Israel to take care of the church while he was gone. He ended up making a golden calf for them. And the people rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings brought peace offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, Exodus 32.6. So Moses reminds Israel of their past, what their parents had done, and some of the adults at that time were children when this took place. Some would have memory of this. 13 through 21, furthermore, the Lord spoke to me saying, I've seen this people and indeed they are stiff necked people. Let me alone that I may destroy them, blot out their name from under the heaven. I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain and the mountain burned with fire. The two tablets of the covenant were in my hands. I looked and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made for yourself a molding calf. You turned aside quickly from the way which the Lord had commanded you. Then I took the two tablets and I threw them out of my hands. I broke them before your eyes. I fell down before the Lord as it was. 
at the first 40 days and 40 nights. So he went up on the mountain a second time. So he just got through a 40-day fast. And then shortly thereafter, headed up the mountain again for another 40-day and 40-night fast where he ate neither bread or drank water because of all your sins which you committed in doing wickedly in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. 19 through 21. I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure with which the Lord was angry with you to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me at that time also. The Lord was very angry with Aaron, would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took your sin, the calf which you made. I burned it with fire. I crushed it. I ground it into very small, as fine as dust. I threw the dust into the brook that descended from the mountain. He forced them to drink from it, although he doesn't mention that here. So he's retelling those days how they rose up to play there at the golden calf, how he went up on the mountain to in intercessory prayer for them, how God spared them at that time. The psalmist recounts this in Psalm 106, 19 through 22. He said, they made a calf in Horeb. They worshiped the molten image. They changed their glory into the image of an ox that eats grass They forgot God, their Savior, who had done wonderful, great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things in the Red Sea. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he destroy them. And Jesus Christ has stood in the breach in our behalf. He bore our sins upon the cross that we would not receive the judgment of God, but in fact that we would become part of the family of God, that we might be saved. So he mentions in verse 22, Terabah, Massa, and Kibroth, Hadavah, where he said, you provoked the Lord to anger. And I'm just going to rehearse these real quick. Uh, Terabah was Numbers 11, 1 through 3 where the people uh, cried out against the Lord, complained against the Lord, and God's anger was aroused against them. And he burned and consumed the outskirts of the camp. And people died because of that there at Terabah. Massa was when they cried out for water, And the Lord had Moses take the rod of God and strike the rock. And water came out for the people could drink. Exodus 17, 5 through 7. Kibroth Hattava in Numbers 11, 4. This sets it up. Now mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving so that the children of Israel also wept against and said, who will give us meat to eat? So when they went out of Egypt, a mixed multitude went with them. And here in Numbers 11:4, the mixed multitude started uh, craving for the meat of Egypt. And then all the people of Israel jumped on the bandwagon. And then God provided quail for them to eat. And at the end of the chapter, Numbers 11:33 and 34, 
it tells us that they, while they still had meat between their teeth, they didn't even have time to floss. <laughs> That's something we would do today. Actually, I was in Africa, and uh, one of the Africans, David, one morning, he had this stick, and he was rubbing it on his teeth. And uh, I asked him, I said, David, what are you doing? He goes, I'm brushing my teeth. And he pulled out the stick, and it was all stringy. He said, look, floss. <laughs> so anyways, even without our modern technology, they could figure it out in Africa and the Sudan. So while the meat was in their teeth, the Lord struck them and they were buried there because the people had yielded to the craving. God next mentions in verse 23, Kadesh Barnea, where God 40 years earlier told the children of Israel to go up and possess the promised land. And they did not go up. They did not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebelled against the Lord. Verse 24 from that day that I knew you. And so they were rebellious at that time, Kadesh Barnea, where they refused to enter into the promised land as found in Exodus chapters 13 and 14. And then we pick up in 24 again. It says, You have been rebellious against the Lord from that day that I knew you. Thus I prostrated myself before the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. I kept prostrating myself because the Lord had said that he would destroy you. Therefore I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, your inheritance who have you redeemed through your greatness whom you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, going back to the forefathers once again. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do not look upon the stubbornness of this people or on their wickedness or their sin, lest the land which you brought us up, say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them because he hated them. He has brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. Yet they are your people, your inheritance, whom you brought out by a mighty power, by your outstretched arm." And so Moses reminding the Lord and in a sense saying, Lord, what would the rest of the world think if you killed them there in the wilderness? The Egyptians would say because God was unable to bring them into the land. There are great warnings in Deuteronomy 8 and 9 that we also need to be careful not to allow pride to lift us up not to think that God's working in our behalf is anything that we have done because it's our own righteousness or because of whom we descended from, because, hey, we're from the United States. You know, we're a special people in all the world. We shouldn't be that way. Even though I came from a Christian family, my faith was passed on to me, but I had to personally receive Christ. As my Savior, my children had to make that choice for themselves. My grandchildren making that choice for themselves. And I'm happy to say that our five grandchildren have made that choice. They are uh, three of them now, three teenage boys. They have a challenge before them, no doubt. But they have a good foundation and I'm blessed to see my children, my grandchildren receiving Christ as their Savior. But 
I realize this blessing is not because of anything that I've done. It's not because of my righteousness. I'm just as stiff-necked at time, at times as Israel was. It comes down to God's grace. Through God's grace, he has worked in our behalf. Through the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, he's taken a bunch of stiff-necked people like you and like me. So let us praise him for the wonderful grace. Galatians 2.25, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. It's not by the works of the law that we are saved, but by grace. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for what you've taught us tonight. And Lord, Moses reminded the children of Israel before they entered into the promised land that your hand was with them, upon them, would go before them, that they were to participate in the battles, but they were also to remember to keep and to obey, to walk in your ways, to know, Lord, when they are blessed and um, the good times come, Lord, that they would not forget you, that their hearts wouldn't be lifted up in pride. All these things, Lord, are a danger that can happen to us as well. We can have victories in our lives that you have given us, and we might think that the victory is actually our own doing and not from you. We can have our hearts lifted up in pride. We can forget and fail to remember and fail to keep and obey and to walk in your ways. But I pray that we would not, Lord. May we always remember it's by grace that we've been saved, not of works lest any man should boast, but by grace we have been saved. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.